0: The pandemic caused a lot of people to explore new hobbies and rediscover old ones, and we'll tell you about one of them, the booming business of metal detectors. The most dangerous theme park to ever exist. From a seven-time world champion cyclist to disgraced athlete, Lance Armstrong is most often associated with his doping scandal more than his charitable successes. But behind the fall, there is an organization fighting to rebrand. How has Livestrong survived the fall of Lance Armstrong himself? And what does the future of the charity look like?
1: All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's-
0: So Dave, during the high of pandemic a couple years ago, uh, a lot of us took on new hobbies or we rediscovered old hobbies that we had kind of put on the shelf. Uh, Did you try out anything new during the pandemic?
1: Unfortunately, uh, there's a meme uh, that goes around from time to time. It it perfectly explains who I am. It says, ah, I had a bad day. I guess I better treat myself next day. "Ah, I had a good day guess I better treat myself. So I'm always looking to treat myself. And so during the pandemic, I was working from home. And so I'd be like, oh, gosh, this has been a long day. It'd be like 3 or 4 p.m. And I'd think, you know what? I think I'm going to buy myself something. So I spent a lot of money ordering myself things. That was probably my hobby was spending money on
0: myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is true. You uh, really do be shopping, as the kids say.
1: It wasn't always cheap either. It was like, AirPods? Yeah, sure.
0: <laughs> like, nice pair of leather boots? I mean, that Zoom meeting lasted a little long, so I guess so.
1: I'll use them. I'll wear them.
0: Well, one of the more interesting hobbies that I've kind of run across uh, that people have adopted during COVID is the use of metal detectors. You know, you kind of think of like somebody with a metal detector, it's always like an old guy on the beach or something like that. You don't really think about like... Old
1: guy, really dark yeah. tan, shirtless, mustache. And they're looking for like
0: something not valuable, like they're looking for like a Civil War <laughs> bullet or something, you know, something that they can't like make money on. The use of this thing has gone up a lot recently. And although the metal detector itself was invented by Alexander Graham Bell in 1881, and he 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 actually invented it, Dave, to locate a bullet that was lodged in the then-president James Garfield. It didn't really catch on until the late 1960s, where the device sort of ushered in a cult following of sorts. But Dave, 60-some years later, we are in the midst of a metal detector boom. Uh, in 2020, the annual report of metal detector manufacturer Mine Lab reported that they had sold 30% more detectors than in 2019. And in 2019, they had sold 18% more than they did in 2018. Metal detectors have even crept into the mainstream, making best gift lists or popping up on social media influencer pages as an emerging trend. YouTube channels that feature detectorists have grown in popularity, uh, some boasting subscriber lists in the hundreds of thousands. When people thought of metal detecting, they thought of the old guy on the beach, says Michael Bennett, a 27-year-old detectorist who runs a YouTube channel called Nugget Noggin. Now, it's not just men. Women are doing it too, and a lot of people my age. But what is behind this sudden influx in metal detecting interest and content? Well, the growth can, to a large part, be contributed to the pandemic. Metal detecting as a hobby is very solitary in nature, and many people embraced it during lockdowns as a way to safely entertain themselves and explore nature. Plus, on top of that, you sort of have this built in lottery factor of it all, too. The chance of stumbling into great wealth is always looming when you have a metal detector in hand, such as a British driver who, in October, October of 2020 found a Celtic chieftain's chariot brooch with a metal detector, which he sold for 55,000 pounds, or the (laughs) 10-year-old in Ireland who found a sword hilt on his very first outing with a metal detector, according to the New York Times.
1: I'm sorry. There's just something funny about that sentence. I'm not sure exactly what you said, but it was something along the lines of... The uh, opportunity at great wealth is always just around the corner <laughs> when you have a metal detector. I'm like sort of <laughs> convincing
0: a, you that it's that's cool. That's how you though. sell like, it. By the end of this, you're going to be like, you're going to be like eBay <laughs> and metal detectors. You're going to be like, I don't know. I mean, maybe
1: not not just yet.
0: But Dave, while it might seem like this practice is just pure randomness, there really is a great deal of skill involved in being a successful detectorist. Uh, in fact, Dave, if you lose something valuable, you can even hide a detectorist through directories like ringfinders.com. All detectorists who are endorsed by the site are personally vetted, they have to go through an application process, and they have to display their knowledge on everything from local laws to ethics before they are approved to work for the site. And then on top of that, many of the detectorists only operate on a rewards-based basis, meaning that if they don't find the object you're looking for, they don't get paid. Woodrow Ingle, a 37-year-old video game designer who took up metal detecting as a side hobby, told the New York Times why he believes so many newcomers have come into the hobby. They're all this sub-generation they call the Oregon Trail Generation, that they had an analog childhood but a digital adulthood, so they're really interested in cool older stuff. Maybe they had a coin collection when they were kids, but they're not afraid to adopt new technology, and they can figure out how to use advanced machines like these new detectors that are coming out. But Dave, as much as the hobby can enrich your life or your pocketbook, it can also have its costs as well. Many who practice the hobby report that it can be physically draining and can take hours and hours of their week. It just becomes easy to say, I'll only do one more pass just to take one more crack at that big score over and over again before you know it, it's nightfall, right? Detectors can also be very expensive, ranging from just a few hundred dollars to something cheap to like $5,000 for more advanced models. And then on top of all that, sometimes you dig up things you don't even want to find, such as the 17-year-old detectorists in Britain who discovered a World War II-era landmine last year, or the group of children in Virginia who detected a Civil War-era cannonball full of black powder last summer. Some countries have even taken it further, such as France, where metal detecting is actually illegal, and goods discovered while detecting are confiscated. Many historical sites in Europe have actually been damaged by treasure hunters using metal detectors attempting to find artifacts. Here in the U.S., metal detecting does have guidelines. For example, you can't use one in a national park or near a monument or historical site without special permission. And Dave, as newcomers have entered the hobby, veterans have been working hard to try to get the ethics of metal detecting out there, that this is a hobby governed by a code of do's and don'ts. Longtime detectors fear that as people looking for social media clicks on videos about scoring while metal detecting attempt to strike it bigger, they'll raise the stakes and cause damage to the reputation of the hobby as a whole. So Dave, there's kind of this weird balance here, right? The old hobbyists want to preserve the ethics code and the newcomers, uh, they maybe could threaten it in the future. So Dave, all that being said, I mean, the status of metal detecting, I mean, it seems to be on the rise and I guess my question to you is like are you in are you ready to try this
1: no i actually think it's uh, worse now than before you start talking to me.
0: <laughs> well you hate the idea of not scoring like you would be out there for five minutes you'd be like i haven't found anything i'm done no i hate the idea of
1: wasting your time to <laughs> find a bunch of cans but here's the thing if you're gonna spend money on a metal detector for five thousand dollars you can get one from like an arena that you walk through so think about that. You have a metal detector in your house. When people come over, they have to walk through it. Make them take off their belt. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Jay, are you a theme park guy? Not really. Um, I went to theme parks a little bit here and there whenever I was younger um, on like trips and stuff like that. And I never really like minded it. But And I know this isn't going to surprise you, I always kind of like just resented standing in line for a long time for like a ride that was going to last for like 40 seconds. I don't have anything against it. It's just it's I just don't know if it's really for me at this that point. That line in of life. thinking just drains the
1: joy out of everything because that's the you probably also do this. That's the same kind of <laughs> I get that's it. the same kind of thinking it. that goes, I'm well, saying. I'm not going to buy this cuz that's 2 hours of work. Well, um, maybe I do that too. <laughs> well, Jay, when I was younger, I was in the band at school, and not like the dorky kind of band kid either. I played the drums, which made being in the band very
0: cool. You tell yourself that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, "Okay, I wasn't in the Band, I was in the cool band.
1: Uh, but anyway, our band director he loved theme parks. So while I didn't go to a ton of theme parks with my family as a kid, we maybe went to a Six Flags once with the band. We went all over the place, multiple Six Flags. We did go to Carowinds with the band. We also went to the Mecca, the roller coaster capital of the world, Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio, multiple times. Now, one place we never went, Jay was an extremely famous theme park in New Jersey named Action Park. Why didn't we go to Action Park, you ask? Well, because Action Park closed in 1996. And why was it so famous? Well, (laughs) Action Park has been referred to by many as the most dangerous theme park in America. Jay, built in 1978, Action Park consisted of mainly water based attraction rides and featured three very distinct attraction areas, each featuring its own set of unique rides. There was the Alpine Center, Motor World, and, what I just mentioned, the water park, the most popular attraction, Water World. In fact, Waterworld was one of the first water parks built in the United States. And throughout the 1980s, two things became very apparent at Action Park. Number one, it was extremely popular. Folks from New Jersey, New York, and really up and down the East Coast loved Action Park with over a million visitors entering its gates every year throughout the 1980s, which included as many as 12 to 15,000 people coming on a single busy weekend day. And number two, it was dangerous. Throughout its run, at least six people died at the park, and significant injuries were common. They happened daily. They were so common, in fact, that the emergency room director at the local hospital claims that anywhere from five to ten significant injuries from Action Park were treated per day on busy weekends and eventually led the park to purchase its own ambulance to try and keep up with the volume. (laughs) So, Jay, what made it so dangerous? and what ultimately led to its closure.
0: I do love how, they, how they're just kind of embracing it, though. They're like, yeah, you could get hurt here. Come on in. <laughs>
1: it's part of the appeal. Well, let's look at a few of the main attractions, shall we? First, there's the Alpine Slide. The 2,700-foot-long slide descended deep into the New Jersey mountains. The ride, featuring chutes constructed of concrete, fiberglass, and asbestos, was nicknamed Death Awaits and caused cuts, <laughs> scratches, and abrasions nearly 50% of the time to riders. And it was the sight J of the first park death in 1980. Next, there's the Skateboard Park. Closed after only one season due to poor design that led to constant injuries, A former employee was quoted in Weird New Jersey magazine as saying, the skate park was responsible for so many injuries that we covered it up with dirt and pretended that it never existed. (laughs) How about the Motor World section? The go-karts at Motor World were supposed to only go 20 miles per hour, which is actually kind of fast. But employees figured out a way to stuff tennis balls into the motor regulation system, allowing the carts to hit (laughs) 50 miles per hour. Need I say more? It's like you're on the interstate wrecking into each other on purpose. Waterworld, as I said previously, was the most popular but also the most dangerous section of the park. In 1983, the park opened Cannonball Loop, an enclosed water slide with a complete vertical loop at the end. And then they closed it a month later after nearly every rider got injured. In fact, when testing the ride, park employees used test dummies to try it out. Most came back, Jay, decapitated. (laughs) A park employee was quoted as saying the following about Cannonball Loop. The Cannonball Loop was not fun. It was more like a ride that you ride to survive rather than to have fun. (laughs) And, Jay, I haven't even mentioned the tidal wave pool yet, nicknamed the grave pool. Well because it was kind of a grave. Multiple deaths occurred at the tidal wave pool. And so, Jay, what made it dangerous and what caused it to close are kind of all the same thing, right? Poor ride construction. The makeup of both the visitors, people looking for a cheaper theme park experience, so change your clientele, and the staff, high school kids who didn't take safety training seriously and would sneak alcohol while on the clock, Mixed with lax government safety oversight was the perfect nightmare cocktail. And Jay, while Action Park is a cultural thing for many Gen Xers, some even adopting the phrase, you know you're really from New Jersey if you've gotten injured at Action Park, its legacy is still kind of complicated. It's the subject of multiple articles and documentaries. And I think one former park goer, Matthew Callen, put it best, Jay. Action Park made adults of a certain generation of tri-state area kids who strolled through its blood-stained gates by teaching us a truth about life. It is not safe, you will get hurt a lot, and you'll ride all the way home
0: burnt beyond belief. (laughs) It's blood-stained gates. I just, uh, I do um, appreciate at least, I mean, you gotta respect their uh, willingness to just kind of you know, throw their hands up and be like, well, you kind of knew what you were getting yourself into, you know, we got an ambulance. Uh, So Dave, I know that you were a pretty big Lance Armstrong fan before the scandal, uh, and I know that, that particularly like really hurt you on some level because you were like a, you were big Lance Armstrong guy.
1: Well, I don't know how you couldn't be just in awe of of what he did as an athlete. So I think, you know, most of us were probably at least mildly interested in what Lance Armstrong was doing. Now, I wasn't like uh, I think this guy's probably like my th- second or third cousin. His name's Neil. So, uh, hey, Neil, if you're listening, what's up, man? Neil and I used to only hang out once a year. I'd see him at my family's 4th of July celebration. And Neil was like a super Lance Armstrong fan. And I remember coming in one Fourth of July. This was like right after it had happened. And Neil was still crying about it. I'm not sure how long <laughs> like the news had broken. It's a little much. <laughs> no, also, I'll, I'll add this before we start. Livestrong bracelets were like a fashion piece. Oh, yes. It, it's like... It's like even more than supporting the charity, people just wanted to wear them because everybody else wear them.
0: Yeah, I remember, you know, I went to high school. um, I graduated in 2007, so I guess it would have been like 2003 to 2007. Um, I tried to find a Livestrong bracelet, and you couldn't even find them. Like, because everybody had them, they were a super in demand uh, product at the time. And so the Livestrong bracelets represent Livestrong, the charity. Right so LiveStrong is a cancer charity and it evolved into a major brand under the founder Lance Armstrong despite this massive revenue crash that happened after the scandal uh, that brand still exists and it's currently working on a rebrand so, Dave, in February of 2020, the brand actually hosted a relaunch event in which it was announced that the company would commit to spending five to six million dollars annually to support entrepreneurs developing products to improve cancer treatment and patient care, according to ESPN. And Livestrong president and CEO Greg Lee told a crowd of supporters at the event, quote, we're more than a wristband. And Dave, the yellow wristband that brought in tens of millions annually to Nike was nowhere to be seen at this event. The clothing line was ended by Nike years ago, and as you would expect, Lance Armstrong was not present or even mentioned at the event. And by now we're all familiar with the story of Lance Armstrong, the cyclist who won the Tour de France seven times and survived testicular cancer that had spread to his lungs and his brain. And Livestrong was founded by Armstrong in 1997 following this diagnosis, and his brand only grew as his success on the bike continued. At its peak, Livestrong accepted $41 million in just donations in 2009, right after Armstrong came out of retirement to place third in the Tour de France. In 2007, Armstrong actually lobbied Texas lawmakers at the last second to pass a $3 billion cancer research fund. The growth continued until his legacy and his reputation crumbled very publicly after revelations that he had used performance-enhancing drugs throughout his career. But before these revelations, Armstrong had built much of his brand on giving back to those fighting cancer in the same way he had, and the cornerstone of that brand was the brand Livestrong. The Livestrong brand partnered with Nike to sell merchandise, equipment, and most recognizable of all, a yellow wristband with the word Livestrong etched into it. The brand brought in hundreds of millions of dollars and donated huge sums of money to cancer research and directly to patients themselves. And so Dave, actually over the 15 year history of the company, it has donated more than $500 million and has improved the lives of thousands of cancer survivors. The company was known for its model in which someone diagnosed with cancer could reach out to Livestrong for one-on-one help to guide them through the treatment of that cancer. And oftentimes Livestrong would cover their medical bills or offer counseling during this traumatic time. And that model in years since, although Livestrong is focused more on a different vision today, has been copied by many charities and foundations in the years since. But Livestrong had a cash problem following Lance Armstrong's scandal. Millions of dollars were lost due to the brand's association with Lance Armstrong. According to 2018 financial records, donations and revenue of the entire company had dropped to $2.5 million. So now, Lance Armstrong and his name association aside... Analysts who give scores to charities actually give Livestrong very high marks for being very transparent and financially healthy. While once a giant in the world of charity, the brand has been reduced, but they still operate to accomplish their charitable goals. The brand has completely distanced itself from Lance Armstrong, its founder. At the relaunch event, not a single photo or video clip of Lance Armstrong were to be found. Only one time did the host reference their, quote, famous founder. And Dave, I scoured the Livestrong website and I could only find one sort of reference to Lance Armstrong under a section titled Our History that read, quote, It started with one person, but it was never about one person. The brand has had to shake that image of being the charity of a cheater and a publicly disgraced one at that. But business and charity wise, it really is a very unique problem to have. And Dave, on top of all this, if you were wondering... Yes, you can still buy the traditional yellow Livestrong wristband on their website for $1 a band if you're interested.
1: Well, it's a tall task that they're setting out to do. I mean, his last name is still part of the name of the company with Strong obviously being a playoff of Lance Armstrong. But I'll tell you what else is a tall task. Folks trying to sell old Livestrong bracelets on eBay and other such sites. So as you said, you can go buy one for a dollar on Livestrong's site. And here this guy is trying to sell an authentic one (laughs) for 35 bucks. It's a picture of him holding it in this dimly lit room. Over this stained piece of carpet,
0: and if you weren't around in the mid two thousands, I don't think we can properly emphasize to you how crazy the world went for Live Strong bands, and then like other uh, groups would copy it, right? So like church youth groups and like you know other charities and like every it was that was the thing. It was like the rubber band around your wrist was huge, and Live Strong started that. Yeah, like here's a NASCAR band. It's a penny get this for a
1: <laughs> and free shipping and well, now that works and that's it thanks for listening to this week's episode don't forget to rate subscribe and review commute on apple podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform check us out we're on social we're on twitter facebook and instagram and you can always say what up at our website commute the Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.